Welcome to the next episode of the Inspirational Insights Podcast. My name is Donna Jones. I'm your host. And with me today are, is Nicholas Horney and Koji Mackay. Thank you. <laughs> We're looking at today or talking today about what it takes to actually be very fluent with the conditions we're in, the VUCA conditions we're in. And to do that, I'm going to turn to Nick to give a little bit of an overview of where he's come. It turns out we both started writing about VUCA about the same time, about 2010. <laughs> yep. So so there's that thread of, of heads up that goes uh, with the conversation. Uh, Nick, can I turn it over to you to kind of introduce what your experience has been, how, how this evolved, and then and then Koji's going to make it real for us. Make it real. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So I appreciate this opportunity uh, to speak with you and speak with those listening to the podcast and Koshi, of course, I just uh, enjoy enjoy uh, being able to collaborate with him and, and work and know him as a friend, et cetera. So uh, pretty remarkable guy. So with all that said, uh, Buka to me was, uh, has been pretty personal. Uh, you know, going back to 2001, things really got started in terms of major disruption. I was Happy as a clam as part of the executive team at a place called the Center for Creative Leadership. And that was such a disruptor. I said that I really need to do something about that that can help equip others to be able to deal with VUCA events on into the future. And VUCA, for those of you who may or may not be as aware, uh, is an army term. And here both Koshi and I are both Navy guys, me a former Navy guy and uh, Koshi being a current Navy guy. Um, the term BUCA originated back in the 90s with uh, the US Army around war fighting and the, just the constant disruption and change in the way uh, war battles were being fought, et cetera. So it's not so much that you know, in the business world we're fighting battles, but certainly we're fighting disruption and you know, all kinds of VUCA events. You know, the pandemic is probably the most recent and current VUCA event and various iterations of that. So VUCA really represents volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And prior to that time, I was using a term just called it turbulence. And I thought that VUCA really was a great, to me, very visual descriptor of what the disruption was that was going on in the business world and getting just faster and faster and faster with uh, digital disruption and technology-enabled disruption, et cetera, that leaders and teams and organizations really needed to be better equipped to effectively not only survive, but thrive you know, in times of disruption. So I began writing this book, Luca Masters, probably a year or so ago, and also capturing examples and illustrations of who are examples of VUCA masters. Some are no longer with us and some still are, a la you know, Koshi Mackay, which is one reason that, that I thought he'd be a great, great guy to be here. But, but a VUCA master is, is someone that can and does demonstrate that leadership agility fitness and a, a new term that I wanted to introduce to the world of, of agile and the agile community and, and leaders in general. The whole concept of fitness, similar to fitness that we all go through in an annual fitness exam or a physical exam that we have, the whole concept of leadership fitness, leadership agility fitness, 
should be the same thing. We need to look at ourselves, reflect on where are we, what's the context, have we changed jobs, are we in a new role, you know, what's happening, and what is our leadership, agility, fitness level. And so therefore, a VUCA master is someone who uh, demonstrates on an ongoing basis, uh, leadership, agility, fitness in a variety of different VUCA events. It may be a personal event, it might be a business disruption, but they're able to demonstrate the, the kind of capability, if you will, to deal with VUCA, which is defined by also introduced in the book and other books is something that we created back in 2001 called the Agile Model. And there are five major elements of the Agile model. I can go into those right now if you'd like as a quick briefing, because Koshi might refer to some of those in his discussion. Would you like that now? Yeah, sure. let's take a look at what it means, because there's a lot of language today in the, in the uh, workplace, the, in the public space around agility, this, this exactly. kind of agility, that kind of, you know, all sorts of agility. And, exactly. and that it sort of loses its... Um, its depth in the in the process, unfortunately. So yeah, yeah unpack it if you, if you would for us, and then Koji, I'd love to hear you know your your version of it, your experience with it, because that's where it all becomes tangible that's and real. real. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll do some unpacking uh, to use your term. I, I love that term. To me, when I started my whole quest to really be able to define what agility was all about, this goes back to two thousand and one. In the same time frame that the Agile Manifesto was being signed and, and the whole technology uh, approach to Agile methodology was growing and expanding. Being an organizational psychologist, our focus is on behavior. It was on human behavior. And it was at an individual level, leaders, teams, and organizations. What was that behavior that really distinguished those that demonstrated you know, agility, whether again, at an individual or a, a group uh, level. With all of that said, I looked around, and again, this is back in 2001, looked around for that model, that framework that would describe it all. And I couldn't find one. At that time, McKinsey was talking a little bit about nimbleness and some of their work. Uh, the US Army was exploring the whole concept of adaptability. And so I set out to really cast the net very broadly in a number of areas to really create a framework now called the Agile model that would, I thought, be a good way of defining what leadership team and organizational agility could all be about. And again, it's based on behavior. Five major aspects that we refer to as the drivers of uh, leadership agility, for example. And it, fortunately, it spells Agile. So the Agile model does go back, spells Agile. So A stands for anticipate change. And what that really means is that these days, as well as in the past, but more so today than ever before, uh, the capability to anticipate change, not wait around until change lands on your doorstep and you're in the throes of it and trying to bounce back and respond and react to that. How can we do a better job of identifying trends and patterns, et cetera, and being proactive and preemptive to anticipate the change? The second is generate confidence. And generating confidence is not just 
self-confidence. It's generating confidence, key others, stakeholders that we're involved with. It could be members of your family at a personal level, but it also could be from a business perspective, those that report to you, whether you're leading a project team or head of a department or the CEO of an organization. It is that generation of confidence by you know, having a clear strategy, being very engaging and collaborative, et cetera. It's all about generating that, that confidence. The third is initiating action. So now we've actually identified the change by anticipating the change. We've got some level of confidence that we know where we wanna go and pretty much how we wanna get there. The third is let's do something about it and let's do it quickly. And that's initiating action. It's about speed, speed of decision-making. The fourth is liberate thinking. Not so much liberal thinking, but it's leaders, part of leaders' accountability is to create that kind of environment in an organization, on a team, et cetera, that says, you know what? I can't possibly think of all the solutions. You out there on the team, you as members of my organizational unit, et cetera, you're dealing with customers and clients and, and sponsors and other business partners, suppliers, et cetera. And you understand some of the challenges and difficulties they have, et cetera. So help me, help me as a leader to better understand that and bring to the table continuous improvement in the way we're getting things accomplished, whether it's with clients, whether it's with our employees, et cetera. And the fifth is evaluate results. It's the metrics, certainly, that, that are important. How do we measure you know, what we've been doing? But also, it's about that frequency and currency of feedback. How well do we, as leaders, really get uh, clarification in terms of what, what the goals are, what are we going after, et cetera, and getting agreement on that? What is that continuous and in-the-moment feedback as opposed to waiting for a formal performance review? And so I've shared all five of these as part of the leadership agility fitness aspect. And it's all five of those. We think of a VUCA master as being someone who is at the peak and achieves or demonstrates strength. And all five of those represented by the agile model. And we have measures and assessments to be able to, to assess uh, just that and build it into development plans. But that's that's the essence of what uh, certainly is communicated and shared in the, uh, the book on VUCA Masters. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Appreciate sure. that. Uh, of course, life is much messier than an orderly sequence there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely yeah. right. <laughs> and so, um, and that's what, that's the part where people often get, get a little bit thrown off by uncertainty because we, we get, we get um, you know, we're so reliant on analysis, looking at things in a small way that we actually sometimes forget to do the heads up part. And as a rider, uh, that was one of our monikers all the time. When you're riding horses, you've got to have your head, you know, it's heads up, heels down, heads up. And that gives you that force that you don't realize how many of these things happen when you're a kid that help you prepare for what lies ahead. Koji, can we go to you? Tell us, how does, how does this live in your life? What's the backstory that brought you to become a VUCA master, if you will, please. Thank you, Donna. And uh, thank you, Nick. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things that you just mentioned, um, Donna, was uh, uncertainty, right? There's a plan um, until life happens. And uh, I think it was just this past weekend, I was speaking to a group of college students and I told them, I said, everybody's got a plan, like Mike Tyson said, until you get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and uh, we all get punched in the mouth more often than we would like to admit. And I think for me, the 
for me, the value of the model comes because it gives me a language to use. Um, most of us, we don't really think about that, uh, but we need a language that can help us process what's happening around us. And when we have a language that helps us process it, in many ways, it helps us prosper as well, because then I know exactly what's happening and in some ways why it's happening. And so now I have something I can do about that. Um, when Nick was talking about the Agile model, you know, I, I have a bias towards action. So the I in the Agile component is important for me. It's we have to initiate action. And there's a lot of times we have to initiate action before we have all the data available to make the very best decision. And most of us get stuck in the middle of uh, challenge and difficulty because we don't actually do anything about that. Um, I live in Texas, and so I have a very special line just for the I component. I always tell everyone, don't be roadkill. Um, a lot of people re don't realize that the reason that we have a lot of roadkill is because that animal could not make a decision. <laughs> and, uh, and we have a lot of squirrels and possums and all kinds of animals that run into the middle of the road. And then they think, oh, maybe this is the time for me to run backward. And it never ends well. And so the, the, VUCA, the VUCA components for me is just an acceptance on one level that we are going to have volatility, that there will be uncertainty those things are going to happen, right? Ambiguity is the norm. Uh, the world will never be the same. Now let's take COVID out of the picture and it was something else. Uh, the world is never going to be the same every single day, but oftentimes human beings require this huge or maybe even monumental experience for them to realize that yesterday is kind of is gone. Today is exactly what it is, but it won't be the same tomorrow and so forth. And so for me, I, I wanted to have something that would really speak my language. One of the things that uh, Nick uh, chose not to share because we can go so deep into this and he and I can really become nerds. But when you look at all five, five components of the model, it's really about leveraging these three areas of people, process, and technology. And in today's world, if you don't know how to leverage the people, the process, and the technology, you're not leading as well whether you're leading an organization of one or an organization of a million, uh, you have to learn how to leverage the people that are in, in your group. Now, if you, you notice the word we use is leverage, this is not using people. We have to leverage all the units of measurement that we have. We have to leverage as much as we can every resource that's available to us. And so when you've reached the point where you know how to use technology, and let's use that as a very simple example, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and all the other social media platforms, they are a wonderful tool. They're just a terrible master. And so the most people will attack the tool rather than the human being who's using that particular tool. The issue is not with social media because social media can be used for good. This podcast can be put out on social media so that people can grow and learn. Whether people choose to do that and to use it that way, that's up to them. And so the leveraging is really important. It's fig figuring out which parts of technology work best. And for me, that was the big part. Um, I've had so many different experiences that would be at that, at that high end of VUCA level, you know, moving 10,000 miles away from my family, uh, working to get into the U.S. Navy, starting a business. I mean, there's so many different pieces and each and every one of those required me to have a, a, a system that allowed me to go in many ways through steps. 
Now you can jump around different steps, but ultimately you go through steps. And if you were if you were able to look at the model itself, it's really a wheel, right? You go from anticipating change to generating confidence, uh, to initiating action, to liberating thinking. Then you go to evaluating results, and then you start all over. Now, does that mean you can't go to to different po points? You can, but for me, I like that because whatever issue I have faced, right? Let's just say it was moving you know, moving from Zambia to here. Well, I had to do a lot of anticipating of uh, change. What are the things that are going to change in my life? Who am I going to have around me? And how best can I leverage, again, the people, the technology and the process to make this happen? Uh, back then, I, as I remember, we had to have phone cards, right? We did not have the capability to use data to make phone calls. We had to have phone cards and you have to dial an 800 number and then put in, you know, 27 uh, digit code and then call your international number. Uh, by the time you were done, your minutes were out because you were just trying to get everything in. But we still learned how to leverage that technology to stay in touch with the people and with us so that we can continue these relationships. So for me, change was easier because I didn't feel extremely distant. But the key was making sure that I was leveraging the people, the technology, and the process. The process piece is always having some version of a plan and recognizing that that plan may change. In fact, most likely the plan will change. And so never to put my, my, my plans and, and etch them into stone, but recognize that they're going to shift and change. And that shift and change is an essential part of my growth. Uh, the example I've been using lately is if you look at any river in the world, it doesn't travel from A to B in a straight line. It meanders a lot, whether it's a river, a stream, a creek, they, it always meanders. <clears throat> and if I can learn from water, it's that you may have a plan and you may still get to where you want to go, but you're going to most likely take a somewhat scenic route because you have to go around certain things and then you have to cut through other things. So for me, that process piece was really, really important. And so when I think about, think of myself as a person who's mastered VUCA, which I think Nick thinks I've mastered VUCA. I just pretend really well to master VUCA. It's really having a mentality that says, whatever comes in front of me, I have the opportunity to make adjust adjustments and also adaptations. And I think that's the key part of any VUCA master. If you, look, if you read the book, you'll look at every single one of the people that have been profiled. They have learned how to adapt, but also adapt quickly and make the necessary changes that they need to make. Now, adapting doesn't mean that we forget about our values. It doesn't mean that we are no longer who we, th we think and say we are. It just means I've looked at the situation and I've counted the cost. And now I'm saying to myself, this is probably not the place where I need to cut through. This is where I need to go around, or this is where I need to go under or go over, et cetera. So that will probably be the, the, the large overview of how I have used the model to essentially generate the lifestyle that I have, the relationships that I have, and then manage all those things in a way that is acceptable, one for me, but also for the people that I, that I interact with and the people that I serve. What I love about that description, uh, Koji, is, is it takes me back to when people now ask me, you know, well, aren't you worried about the front or the back, the past to the future? And, and it's like, no, because, if you stay focused, you know, you bracket your focus in the moment, it's a lot easier to manage. You're not dealing with the, the chatter of what might happen or could happen. You know, you're not projecting yourself into the future and, and focusing on that. You're actually able to respond because you're, you're not distracting yourself with too many places to go. Huh. So 
Donna, um, just a, thank you. A, a, a quick comment, and uh, Koshi's being very modest in terms of the things that he's done, not only his travel over here, but getting a PhD, doing all that was necessary to become a citizen, uh, becoming an officer in the Navy. I mean, you know, just some incredible things. And he's got an incredible bride and uh, anyhow, just family life, et cetera. And the reason that I share that is that there's a concept in personality, a theory around uh, personality uh, that uh, it's, it's referred to as state trait personality or state trait anxiety. But if you think of personality as a trait, it's that kind of underlying fundamentals of, of who you are. That's one aspect of personality theory. The other is a state. It depends on the situation and the situation changes, et cetera. So you may adjust and adapt your personality based on that. So with this, the concept of VUCA masters could be state trait, um, you know, concept of VUCA masters. You may see someone behaving as a VUCA master for a single event, but other events, and think of leaders, other events, they may go back to old habits, et cetera, and they really are not uh, possessing that underlying capability of demonstrating VUCA mastery or leadership agility uh, fitness in everything they do, both, both again at the personal level and at the business level. So wanted to introduce a bit of that uh, personality theory into it as well. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great, great observation. I want to just, Koji, I've traveled through Zambia when it wasn't Zambia. <laughs> it was Rhodesia at the time. So don't do the math, whatever you do. But uh, but but that, you know, knowing you came from that environment is phenomenal because, it, you know, I appreciate what you just said, Nick, very understated, the, yes. the accomplishment of moving from an environment that really has, it's extremely complex and there's so many dimensions to it. How did that help you move into this role, you know, to this fluency, what I think of as a fluency with VUCA conditions? I think for me, it was the foundations. Recently, somebody asked me, you know, why did you join the military? And I think what they're really trying to ask is why did you join the military at this point? Um, <laughs> you know, so I told them, I say, you know, my parents gave me an amazing foundation. And then this country gave me the opportunity to build on that foundation. Uh, there really wasn't any other place in the world where I felt comfortable enough to do that and completely be myself. And so for me, that was, you know, that complexity inside of Zambian culture, you know, 18 million people now, slightly larger than Texas, 64 different languages. There's a lot of complexity there. And we, in American culture, we really struggle with complexity and ambiguity. If you look at any of Gert Hofstede's work, especially you know if you look at his book *Culture's Consequences*, one of the one of the traits consistently over time that is that that you know that is clear about American life is that we generally don't like ambiguity. That's why whenever we have uncertainty happen inside of the economy, it takes it it, it, it takes it. It takes much more time in the U.S. for us to rebound compared to Europe because Europe is already accustomed to uncertainty and they live with uncertainty in a much more comfortable way. We really struggle with that here. So for me, the uncertainty in Zambian life really helped me to come here and be able to, to comfortably live in the middle of all the different changes and all the different experiences and sometimes the layered, the, the layered nature of all the, all the cultural shifts and changes that were happening around me. And so having that 
foundation was really helpful. And I've been doing informal research lately, just looking at other immigrants who've come in, who've come from similar locations. It's one of the reasons I'm finding, at least you know, anecdotally, that they tend to thrive in our culture because they have a little bit less anxiety. You know, you were talking, Donna, about the, you know, worrying about, you know, the back and the front. Someone asked me, what, you know, why, why, why don't you get worried? I said, well, I don't worry about anything I can't control. And so I can't control it, so I don't worry about it. They said, well, what about the things you can't control? I said, well, why worry about the things I can control? All I have to do is push a button, get up, stand, move. There's nothing to worry about. So for the most part, there's not really anything to worry about. And I know that's an oversimplification, but that's really where it starts is I want to focus my energies on the things that matter. And when you start to develop that mastery around VUCA, that's what you're doing. VUCA is extremely practical, but that practicality starts here is it's an amazing mental model, but also an an amazing emotional model that allows me to bracket, as you said, the things that are happening around me and to really ask the most important questions. Because oftentimes when things happen, we go straight to the emotional reaction without putting those brackets around the situation and say, is this normal? Is this something that happens all the time? Is this consistent? Asking those really important questions that help me to become a little bit more circumspect. And so speaking the language of the Agile model or, or VUCA mastery, it really makes you sit back. One of the things Nick didn't talk about was the breakdown when you look at speak, you know, when you speak to your doctor for that one time a year, perhaps it is one time a year. There are a lot of questions the doctor will ask. Some of them seem repetitive that you've asked, you know, you asked me this last year, you asked me this five years ago, but it's the same question because we want to figure out what is that baseline looking like? Are there any spikes where they shouldn't be? Are we seeing any slight improvements in things that, you know, specifically matter, right? Is your cholesterol going up or down? And is that up or down significant or not? Is your cholesterol high because it's a genetic issue or it's because of what you're eating? There's all these questions that we ask. And I think in the middle of VUCA, we don't ask enough questions. And this model forces you to ask questions. You have no choice but to ask questions. And so for me, that fitness level is what's exciting because then I'm asking myself those questions. And then as a leader, I'm asking my team those same questions. So now we're all speaking the same language. Yeah, that's a beautiful observation. I need I need to go back to something I observed in culture, you know, between Africa and and North America, and then we'll bridge this. You know, I'd like to bridge this to what you see in cultures. I mean, you you from your point of view in the military, but also from a business culture. Going back to Nick, when I was traveling, I've been to Africa a couple of times, and and during the some part of the process, I forget exactly when, I observed or learned that the the way uh, stories are told in Africa and correct me if I'm wrong, there's no, it's a bit ambiguous. The endings are a little bit ambiguous. You're left to figure, you know, make some sense out of the what actually happened. Whereas in North America, you got to know the ending, like make it certain for, I need to know exactly what happened to these characters. And I think, you know, embedded in that, first of all, is that correct? Is that if I do, do I remember that well? <laughs> that was, again, that was beautifully said. Um, here in American culture, we love to close the story loop. Um, in African culture, the story loop is often left open because that's the way we've communicated for you know, hundreds, thousands of years. And so you can fill in the blank in order for you to learn what you need to learn from the telling of this story, whether it's a historical story of things that actually happened or some version of a fable. We always want people to be part of that history. And so we allow people in the middle of those stories to, to get engaged even more. 
And I think that it attributes, I had a conversation with Dwayne Matthews on another podcast, and we were talking about the resourcefulness that the African kids come up with when they hit a wall, they, they have nothing and they make up something. <laughs> and it's phenomenal what they make up. I mean, everything from hacking an Android in five days, getting on the internet, which they didn't have access to, and playing games, you know, I mean, it's remarkable. So when we take that backdrop of the things that in our cultures, you know, define certainty or, or habitually create that need for certainty, how does this play out when you move it into business culture or military culture? You know, Donna, that's, as I was listening to the two of you talk about that, I just started thinking a bit more in terms of what, um, what we have been after, what I've been after since 2001, with my whole focus on leadership and organizational agility. To your point, I've really concentrated on building capability, not specific tools, not a specific solution, et cetera. And it's as Koshi was, I think, describing, how do we build a framework that allows individuals, allows organizations to have a lens on what's happening in the world around them so that they can collectively start making sense out of that and collectively working uh, as a team, as an organization to come up with their own solutions to what the VUCA presenting uh, conditions are. I mean, whether it's, again, pandemic, whether it's right now, one of, the, one of the things that I'm finding is that businesses are really wrestling with this whole concept of hybrid work design. And hybrid work design, for those of you that, that know this, that are listening to the podcast, has everything to do with, okay, so now what do, what do we do? Some people really got a taste of working at home. They weren't working before at home. They really like it. They like to be able to do that. Others are rushing back into work saying, I don't want to ever do that again. I want to work back in my work setting. And there's some in between saying, well, maybe it's a couple of days work in the work setting, the facility, and then other time I can get things accomplished virtually, uh, you know, that way. And I think that that, that helps uh, present itself in a way that says, all right, so how do we, how do we deal with this new world of work that, that doesn't give solutions and XYZ technique uh, to go solve something it, with the attempt of this, and, and even in the book, is to try to provide that framework, that, that capability to view the world, view the, the challenges, view the VUCA uh, that is presenting itself, regardless of what that VUCA looks like you know, on into the future. How do we anticipate the changes coming out of that? How do we generate confidence as we are approaching and dealing with that? How do we initiate action so we're not just sitting around waiting for government to tell us how high to jump or whatever it may be, but it, it really is being able to apply that real time so that in fact, you don't define that you can only use XYZ steps under this condition of VUCA. It's any and every disruption. How do we apply this? And guess what? We may never have experienced a particular VUCA event you know, like the pandemic before in the past, but, but can we utilize a framework like this to look at those conditions and collectively with our key stakeholders, et cetera, really do, you know, for example, with the pandemic, 
do a much better job of anticipating changes, how it's going to impact the employees, how it's going to impact suppliers. So what is it that we need to be doing to really be better equipped to deal with that? I would just add this, this piece. So when I think about the Agile model, it makes me think a great deal about resiliency. And so inside of an organization or, or at an individual level, uh, resiliency, resiliency the, the time to learn resiliency isn't when you're in the middle of the fight. It's before that. You know, you don't want to get into the ring with someone and then figure out this is how you box or this is how you, you know, perform um, martial arts. And so for me, that was an important piece is when I look at my clients who were already in the throes of the agile model and using it as a mental model, et cetera, their transition through the pandemic was not as complicated. Right. Yes, there were a lot of moving pieces, but it was not as complicated for them because they were able to make those adaptations faster. Um, I, am a, I am a results-driven person. I think results matter. Um, and so in order for me to have an, a, a better understanding of what results look like, it's about what you measure. And so I've always said you, you, we measure what matters. And so we need to constantly have some, something that we're using to measure our success. People tell me, well, this person's successful. Well, by what definition and by what measures? So if an organization or an individual is going to be successful, they have to make a determination of what measures are going to be used to determine their success. And so the evaluating piece of the Agile model really does help us have a better understanding of what matters most to us. And so, again, if our people really matter to us, uh, this pandemic just showed how much our people really do matter to us. If our people didn't matter to us prior to the pandemic, all that the pandemic did was show up and show us that these folks don't matter. And so a lot of times difficulties and, and hard situations, they come in to show us what matters to us and who we actually are. In many cases, I say that situations and difficulties, they're extremely neutral. They really are. It's our perspective that then turns them into negative or positive. And so, right. yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Going back to the, I can't help but to jump in here, going back to the medical model that you were talking about and, and the whole concept of fitness and the fact that we go in, ideally and hopefully, we go in and see our doctor at least once a year and we have our physical. And as you said, cholesterol may be up. They're not sleeping enough. We're not exercising appropriately, whatever. And so that doctor literally is acting as a coach to us in terms of doing these things well, keep them up. You need to work on focusing on these. And you go, yes, doc, you know, I'll work on that. We'll, we'll check in uh, next year and you'll take blood and weigh me and all that kind of stuff to see how I'm doing. The same thing, and, and this is what I get really energized about, should be done with leaders in terms of their leadership, agility, fitness. You know, what is so difficult in a leader and getting a perspective in terms of, okay, my, my role has changed. I've moved into a different job. I moved to a different company. Uh, I moved to a smaller independently owned. I moved to a large global. The context has changed. Now's a perfect time to be able to say, let me capture that baseline in terms of what my leadership agility fitness is and what are the areas, okay, doc, you tell me, coach, what are those areas that I really need to concentrate in on, whether it be areas of anticipating change or areas of generating confidence, et cetera, so that I have that as part of my development plan that next year, and hopefully even sooner than that, 
next year you can see what progress you've made and then also uh, take another look at, you know, directions that you may uh, need to focus in on for the forthcoming year. I agree. I think it's that self-awareness piece for the leader. And this model, you can't hide because of all those questions that we're asking. <laughs> right. You can't hide and you have to be much more self-aware. Once the doctor has told you that you have X number of risk factors for you know, Y type of disease, no matter what happens, that's information now that is available to you. You can't say, I didn't know. Now you know, and there's some changes that, that are necessary to be made. And so now, same thing, you're going to leverage people, technology, and process. And that process may be personal changes that need to happen. Technology might be um, you know, the, the different blood draws and everything else. You start to keep them on your phone so you can keep a closer eye. Perhaps you start to keep a closer eye on the food that you're eating, et cetera. And then you have a good support system that, that helps you there. And so being able to take this model from a very personal level to a team level, to a division level, to an organizational level, and perhaps even to a community level, it allows us to start to, to become better at managing the shifts and changes that happen naturally in, in human experience. And if those changes are going to happen, then I have some play in terms of whether I can anticipate some of those changes coming. There is a point that's going to come when I will be older than I am today, and that's going to be in the next minute. And then in the next 10, 10, 10 years, in the next 20 years, certain things are going to change, right? This is the only body I have been issued. At some point, there are certain pieces that will wear out. That's the reality. What can I do now to ensure that my quality of life is much better going into the future? So the same way that we think about that from a physical body perspective is how we should think about our leadership. Changes are going to happen. The business will change. We'll buy, we'll buy certain businesses. We'll sell certain parts of the business. How can I, as a leader, be prepped and ready so that when those changes come, um, I'm not caught as you know, like, like a deer in the headlights? You know, Donna, too, the, uh, the thing that I find about those that truly do exhibit VUCA mastery are able to exhibit that not just in a business role, but also at, at a personal level. You know, if you're your daughter is getting married, you know, how do you anticipate the changes and generate confidence? What about if it's a time for your first child, you know, and the discussion that you're having with your spouse about, all right, now let's anticipate those kind of changes. We're not gonna be able to go out and socialize the same way that we always have socialized in the past. How do we generate confidence in terms of, I don't know how to raise a kid. What, how do, what do you know about raising a kid? I mean. I, so it's those kinds of things that if you can start applying that framework as well at a personal level, certainly in my case, uh, not so much having kids, but it has more to do with living on the coast of North Carolina. There are hurricanes here. So how do we anticipate the changes and how do we prepare for that? How do, how do I build confidence with, with my family in terms of dealing with that, et cetera? So that's to me when you start personalizing it and, and looking at it internalizing as a way and a framework to be able to deal with all kinds of VUCA events, whether they're personal or whether they're business. I have one last thing to say to Donna and to share to, with both of you, and then I'll turn it over to Donna. Um, my view, a leader's job isn't to protect his organization or to protect her organization, it's to prepare the organization. And that's one thing that the model does really well. It helps us learn how to prepare ourselves and our environment for the changes that might be coming. Great. Donna. <laughs> Thanks. No, I really appreciate this conversation. Central to it uh, is my, my, my sense of that is that it's, it's about learning 
uh, it's a focus on constantly learning and engaging in life. I mean, the yeah. distinction at a personal level is do I get my remote, kick back and watch television or do I actually engage in shaping my life's experience while I'm here? I mean, as you say, you've got one life, one body, let's, let's have fun with this. Let's, let's do the best we can do while we're here. And I, I think that's the fundamental you know, launching point, if you will, for how to work with these things that come out of nowhere. And most systemic issues are going to happen like that. They don't sort of put up a flag and say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to unexpected issue coming in Tuesday at 12, you know, be ready, anticipate me, I'm coming in. It's a combination of anticipating, but also just focusing on being, you know, totally engaged with the life you're leading and, and with the contribution you're making in, in your work as well. So any advice now? I mean, we have in the business world a number of, of stories where leaders have done a great job and in other stories, it's, it's been, you know, sticking to old habitual decision-making processes, which means, you know, if you've got the assumptions, the core assumptions that underpin the decisions are frequently not explicit. They're buried and people experience them as being fair, unfair, I'm cared about or I'm not cared about. Uh, what message would you have for leaders in the top who, who are just kind of wrapping their minds around this hybrid thing and or in some cases just saying there is no such thing as hybrid, you're coming in. So the autonomy people have experienced over the duration of, of the pandemic is all of a sudden gone. That's going to have an impact. I think they call it the great resignation. Uh, but, but there's also the different elements of that, too. I mean, there's the absolute positional, they must come in, whether it makes sense or not. There's the other part of the opportunity to, to really tailor what we do in our design, our workplaces, to, to pay attention to human needs, which is a more of a human-centered approach, which in itself is an innovation. I mean, I see the disruption as opportunities for innovation. doesn't matter what it is. A life disruption, you know, what do I do with this? Life review, you know, what do I, what do I want to take forward? What do I want to leave behind? It, it's all kind of, um, there are parallels to this, is what I'm saying. So what messages do you have? Let's, let's hear from both of you on that, please. Sure. Coach, you want to watch it. Let me go ahead and jump in. And then I know you'll have more to add on this. We've dealt with some clients, even, even in terms of uh, the whole idea of hybrid work design and, and what that's like and, and how to deal with that. But again, just, just as we've shared before, use a lens, use a framework that's going to help you prepare for that. And one of the ways to do that is to use the agile model and hold the agile model up as the lens. Think about hybrid work as that disruptor and ask, ask yourself and collaborate with others around anticipating the changes coming about you know, from hybrid work. How do, how do people lead? How are team meetings handled? What do we do? How, how do we make decisions about who works virtually, who works uh, in, in the, uh, the facility themselves? Uh, and then generating confidence. Uh, use that again, the whole model as a lens what do we do to build confidence in our workforce so that, in fact, there's so many, there's some statistics on how many people, if you force them to go back to a work setting that they don't want to, they want to remain where they are in a virtual work setting, how many will decide to go elsewhere? And it's a pretty significant number. I've seen numbers as high as 40% uh, saying, okay, I can get what I want done. I can do that independently and, and hence, I have a number of options out there to jump where I want to go. Initiate action. Don't wait around uh, in terms of letting someone tell you 
and defining for you what hybrid work looks like. Or don't just walk over to your, your best business buddy out on the golf course and say, uh, how did you uh, put your hybrid work? Design? Ah, that sounds good. I think I'll do exactly the same thing. No, collaborate and engage uh, your, your team, your workforce in what hybrid design looks like and initiating action, doing it with speed. Think outside the box, be creative to liberate thinking and evaluate results, constantly measure, you know, as Koshi was sharing, constantly measure, what are we finding out? How engaged are employees? Are we getting the same kind of productivity done? How are we building collaboration in? How do we develop our leaders now? Leaders that we had in the past were very familiar with leading in the environment where they could always see and work with their team and they were there personally together. Now we've got teams that are some coming from India, some from the US, some at home, some in the facility, et cetera. Now we've got to really work with leaders in terms of their development, in terms of how do you communicate? How do you have team meetings? How do you keep that ongoing? How do you build the kind of team, team spirit uh, that you want to build and the culture that's necessary to sustain the, the organization in the direction you want it to go. So it's a, it's a framework that again, can and should be utilized as a way to look at these kinds of disruptions, whether it's hybrid work design or some, some future challenge. Bibi and Redmond defined human communication as making sense of the world and sharing that sense with others. That's going to be a central part for most organizations is we're going to have to default to over-communication rather than under-communication. And part of the over-communication is having these constant conversations. It doesn't necessarily mean that just because we've had the conversation and we've collected all this information that we're going to act on exactly what our folks have, have shared with us, because the burden of leadership is making really hard choices. But it's important for the organization as a whole to understand what the framework and the business model looks like. So an organization that has, you know, 2 million square feet in, in space, you just don't wake up one morning and say, well, that's fine. Everybody can go work from home. And so the, as an organization, people would have to understand that. But if we do that, there's some losses we're going to incur. And if we have those losses, they're potentially going to be jobs that are going to be lost. And so everybody has to realize what the stakes are. And so those crucial conversations are important for the organization to have. The model is going to be a good framework um, and a mental model to help people have that discussion. But ultimately, you have to have honest conversation. And so if I'm a leader, whether I'm a leader of a global brand uh, or inside of a global brand, or I'm a leader of a company in the U.S. that has 100 or less than just, uh, just under 100 people, the, the concerns and the consequences are the same, at least on a, on a very micro level, which is we have space that still needs to be used on a 10-year lease, on a five-year lease. And so now I need to have conversations with my CFO and the rest of my team saying, if we break this lease, would the cost of breaking this lease offset having people to not, you know, not work from here, et cetera. There's so many pieces. So ultimately, this is going to be very, very messy. Any leader who's going to try to oversimplify this type of situation doesn't really understand leadership, doesn't understand, doesn't really understand the cultural phenomenon that we're experiencing right now. But the people who are going to be affected the most, they need to be part of the decision-making. It doesn't mean that they will get the decision that they want, but they need to be part of the decision. Most human beings just want to know that you heard them. 
that they had an opportunity to share their perspective and what their needs are. Whether those needs end up being met or not is not is not important because I would rather much I would rather hear from a boss telling me I would really love for you to work from home, but there's no way we can do that on when we still have a 10-year lease and the cost of breaking that would actually break us this year and probably for the next two years. So at this point, we need people to be in the office because the space is already paid for and it's already here. Um, perhaps we can go to a three-day model or two-day model. So there's different ways that you can then find that middle ground. But ultimately, I think it's about making sure that communication is clear and frequent. And if leaders can do that, maybe even create a very separate channel just for discussions around that one particular issue, that would be helpful. And I'd probably say the last piece is making sure that you involve this one person in the organization, and that is your your chief people officer, HR person, whatever you call them in your organization. They generally have a finger on the pulse of what's going on inside the organization, at least them and their team. You want to be able to hear that unfiltered information from the people side, because oftentimes we look at the financial picture, which is important for us to do as um, organizational leaders, but we also have to consider people as well. How, how is this going to affect people? How is this going to affect hiring now and in the future? How is this going to affect retention now and in the future? And so we have to have a very holistic perspective. And so our view of our business world has to be contained in this conversation and then shared out to the masses so that people have an, an, an awesome and honest opportunity to be able to share what they think. So when they make their decisions, it's an informed decision. Yeah. Excellent advice from both of you. Thank you. It's funny because I've been um, sitting, you know, sitting on conversations with the, with the facilities, man, commercial real estate people, and was a subject matter expert for the international facilities. Management Association and what they're doing with that space that, you know, a great, great example is redesigning because all of a sudden that space isn't going to be used for offices. It's going to be used in, you know, in a different way. And right. so it, it, they may shrink space, but they'll also redesign it. So there's a lot of interesting things going on, quite creative things. And the other thing I'll, I'll just point out from listening to both of you in this and the journeys that you've brought to, to this point is that, you know, these events, these uncertain, you know, ambiguous, volatile, the, the whole picture is really an opportunity to decide who you become through it. it it's not a, a matter of just being a victim of the virus or whatever it is you want to point your finger at. It's more a matter of who do I, you know, if I really truly engage, who do I become as a consequence of what am I, I'm experiencing now? So, I want to thank you both very, very much for being on the program. Any final thoughts you'd like to add? Just, just a quick one. Uh, well, Koshi, uh, I know you, you've got some time limitations. Did you want to uh, jump in and share something? I was just going to say thank you for, for having us. Um, you know, Nick and I are extremely passionate about uh, agility and agile model, and we certainly could talk long and long and long around it and go into much deeper, deeper things than people are truly interested in. So thank you so much for keeping us uh, focused and, and helping us bring a very practical experience to, to your listeners. Oh gosh, it's wonderful to have you both on. Thank you very much, Koji. And I'll be in touch later. So I know you have to pop off right about now. And Nick, do you want to just add? Just, just a quick one for me. I know that we, we focused on more recently the hybrid uh, work and you know, the kind of the organizational challenges there. Let's not forget the individual. Let's not forget the individual leader. And that was some of, somewhat of the focus of the book. And, and it really is around building capability, building capability to be able to 
you know, anticipate and address, you know, the kinds of VUCA challenges that are going to be coming up at us, uh, you know, on into the future. And it's not that in the past we didn't have VUCA challenges. It's just that technology these days is enabling the, those kind of challenges to build in volume and speed, et cetera. And I think for leaders and specifically for leaders uh, to think about themselves and, and take the time uh, to be able to just, just like we should take the time for a health fitness checkup, the same thing as that leadership you know, fitness checkup. Take that time and be able to uh, slow things down, look at where you are and look at the things that can and should be addressed to make you a better leader. So I'll leave it, leave it with that. Well said, Nick. Um, I also want to take this opportunity to thank the Business Agility Institute for their support with this podcast and to tell you to pop over to the businessagility.institute website, look up the Emergence magazine, which is a really outstanding magazine. I just got my other, my next issue, and you'll get 10% off a subscription there if you plug in the right. code D-A-W-N-A, my first name. So yeah. so uh, just to repeat, that's D-A-W-N-A. Head over and get really what is an outstanding magazine. I've had the honor and pleasure of writing a couple of articles for it on these things. Nick, thanks again for being on the program. I really appreciate the work you're doing. It's much needed because I think I can't find exactly off the top Daniel Kahneman's quote, but we are moving into an area of exponential change and people are trained to think linearly. So this is a time, um, really a time to become more fluent. And the first stop, and I love what Goji said, the first stop is about that, you know, that um, getting that language around what am I experiencing? You know, how do I navigate this and, and actually identify it because it's, it's messy as an experience and yeah. it becomes unmessy, you know, when you can actually say, oh, I'm, I'm here. This is where I am on the map of, of becoming a VUCA master. So thank right. you very much for that work you're doing. Enjoyed it very much. It was a, it was a pleasure and uh, best wishes to you. 